Construction sites can be more of an eyesore than a work of art, but a downtown business improvement district's working to change that conception. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On today's show, how some lower Manhattan construction sites are being transformed into canvases for public art. But first, if you got on a subway recently and saw a bunch of people in their underpants, well, that was the work of the group Improv Everywhere, and they've been pranking New Yorkers for several years now. Joining us now on Cityscape are two of Improv Everywhere's so-called senior agents, Alex Gordelis. Welcome. Thank you for having us on. And Rob Lathan. Rob, welcome. Thank you. What's the history behind Improv Everywhere? Well, uh, it started. It was started by Charlie Todd uh, back in 2001. He moved to New York City to be an actor, and I think he was having a tough time finding acting gigs. And one night he was uh, out on the town with some buddies, and they were at a bar. And one of his friends turned to him and said, you know what, Charlie, you kind of look like the singer Ben Folds. Uh, let's try to trick the people in this bar into thinking that you are Ben Folds. His friends left the bar, left Charlie sitting there. They came back in and uh, said, Ben, Ben, can we get your autograph? And... Charlie signed their autographs and said, hey, thanks, you know, keep it cool. And uh, sure enough, the whole bar turned on him, thinking that he was this rock star, and girls started giving him their phone number, bartenders giving him free drinks, and Charlie thought, this is more fun than real acting. Uh, I can make a theater anywhere. Speaks and to the gullibility of New Yorkers, huh? <laughs> it sort of does, yeah. And so uh, that was the first Improv Everywhere mission. We like to call it Pranks Missions. And uh, from there, it's sort of grown and... We've done uh, dozens and dozens of more missions since then. But that was the first one. When did you first learn of Improv Everywhere? I learned of Improv Everywhere probably in about 2004 when I moved to New York City. and uh, From where? From California. Okay. Um, and uh, learned about the No Pants subway ride and then started doing uh, classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which was where a lot of us met. And that's where I met Charlie. And he sort of told me about Improv Everywhere and the stuff they were doing. And it sounded like a lot of fun. So your first prank was to ride the subway pantless. It was uh, back in 2006. <laughs> How about you, Rob? Yeah, I first learned about it um, through Charlie Todd. I did stuff at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and would would see like the first missions that Charlie did. And within the comedy community, like it immediately took on, and it, it slowly just built from there. And my first mission was a uh, was a no pants, I believe, back in 2003 as well. Now, you two both have theater backgrounds, comedy backgrounds, but I would imagine other people just do it for the fun of it. Yeah, a ton of people do it. I have friends who do the No Pants Subway Ride. There's a thing in the summer called the MP3 Experiment where everyone syncs up an MP3 track and gets together and does a large-scale sort of a – it's almost like a happening together. And, yeah, tons of people who don't have a theater background participate in improv everywhere, people from all walks of life, from little kids to senior citizens. As someone who's never ridden the subway without pants on, what's it like <laughs> to ride the subway without pants? You want to feel that one, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> it's magical. It's uh, Magical, huh? Oh, yeah. No, it – it's not it's not as um as tough as you think or as, it's not as the the first time you do it you might be a little embarrassed but because other people other agents are doing it with you it, you just kind of shrug and you're you know it's like all right I'll just take my pants off you know like, it's as if I'm riding the subway you know normally like every, an everyday occurrence <laughs> And we need to point out that it is completely legal, right? Exactly. It, it is completely legal. And uh, back in 2006, though, that legality was challenged by, <laughs> um, the, I believe the train had pulled up to 59th and Lexington Avenue in New York City. And there was a police officer on the platform 
who saw this train stop at the station filled with people in their underwear, and he immediately suspected something was awry and demanded the train be stopped and uh, ordered everybody off the train. And they handcuffed a few agents who got detained and taken downtown. And what, it's funny, one of the officers doing the handcuffing was named Officer Panton. Which <laughs> yeah. is, that, that's serious. That's totally true, yeah. Wow. Uh, I think he had a vendetta against Pants, <laughs> Pant off. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, yeah, so um, everyone got detained. Six, about, I think eight people got detained uh, in handcuffs. And uh, it turns out, though, that it's totally legal. I mean, in Times Square, they have the naked cowboy who's in his underwear pretty much every day of the year. And if that guy can do it, there's no reason why we can't run yeah. the subway in our underwear. Is it the exception or the rule to have the NYPD raise an eyebrow over what you guys do in New York City? It's usually the exception, I would yeah. say. Usually mo- most missions, like cops, do not get involved, I would say. Very rarely yeah. cops get involved. I- I'm off the top of my head, I think the only... One of the other times that the police got involved is uh, when there was a mission called Best Buy. We had 80 of our agents, which is what we call all our participants, uh, wear a blue polo shirt and khaki pants and walk into a Best Buy about two at a time. And of course, that's the employee uniform there. <laughs> and uh, we thought that would be a really funny thing to do. The workers in the store thought it was a, some sort of elaborate heist. And they started running around saying, Thomas Crown Affair, Thomas Crown Affair. Because I think <laughs> in the movie, that's something that happens where everyone dresses in similar clothes and pulls off a heist. And so the police did show up, but they said there's nothing illegal about wearing khaki pants and a blue shirt. And gotta <laughs> let these guys go. Besides Best Buy, you guys also targeted Abercrombie and Fitch, right? That's right. Yeah. Tell us about that prank. So that was like, hun- like what at least a hundred people mm-hmm. with their shirt off, posing as an Abercrombie and Fitch employee, because they had, you know, they had like the the models that would just like hang out at the store with their shirts off, you know, improv everywhere. We had just a hundred dudes and just walking around some, you know, looking buff, some, you know, just normal people, you know, with their shirt off. Yeah. I'm not in great shape. And I was sort of walking around, but the, the funny part is that Abercrombie store, the one we went into on fifth Avenue here, uh, it's sort of like a shrine to shirtless men. Yeah. I mean, not only is there like the shirtless male model in there, but they have like a giant mural of men working on a <laughs> ship without their shirts on. How do the employees react to that? It's funny, the employees, in pretty much any mission that we do in a retail store, the employees always act in the same way, where the lower-level employees just love it, and they get a huge kick out of it. But the management is pretty much like, we got to put the cash <laughs> on this, and we got to stop these guys right now. I love the Home Depot prank that you guys pulled off. All of the agents were shopping in slow motion? Yes, called Slow Mo Home Depot, which I think Charlie just thought sounded cool. Which was <laughs> the idea of, And then the idea was to have people uh, shop in slow motion for a couple of minutes and then uh, resume full speed. And then after that, uh, freeze in place, which was the first freeze that Improv Everywhere ever did. And the funny part about that in the Home Depot, they started playing the Jewel song Standing Still. Which uh, was kind of perfect. Uh, people <laughs> thought that was arranged by Charlie. It was, it was not. It was just a happy coincidence. Yeah. Speaking of standing still, tell us about the prank you pulled at Grand Central called Froze in Grand Central. Yeah, that's probably the most popular mission we've done. It's, it's gotten like over 20 million views on YouTube or something like that. And that was inspired by the slow-mo Home Depot. And so that's where 40 agents went to Grand Central Station and froze for five minutes. It was a very simple thing, but it was such a great contrast between people freezing in place and the hustle and bustle of Grand Central with people, you know, moving in and out on their way. And people just couldn't understand what was going on. Like I had like these two teenage girls that were right next to me when I froze and they're like, what's going on? What are you doing? And they're like, let's try it. Let's try to freeze. And then they'd freeze for like 
five seconds and get tired of it and be like, no, let's move on. <laughs> How do you do this with a straight face? Oh, it's not too hard. I mean, uh, that's sort of the one rule if you want to be a participant in improv is you have to be able to keep a straight face. Exactly. And, uh, think of something sad. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of that video, though, Frozen Grand Central, is uh, Rob is featured prominently. He's frozen in front of a like a maintenance car oh, just yeah. trying to get by. <laughs> the guy's laying on his horn, and then Rob is sort of standing like, looking at a map or yeah. something. And, uh, Are all of your actions videotaped? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, they weren't, but since like the past, like several have, have all been videotaped, and they'll all be videotaped in the future. How is that done without giving away what you're doing? We try to hide the, the cameras as much as possible. And what's good is, with today's culture, everybody has a camera of their own, a camera phone. So our cameras will sort of get lost in the shuffle between everybody else's camera. Yeah. Pretty much any time one of our cameramen gets stopped and people say, are you part of this group? Are you filming this? And they say, no, I'm just a tourist. This is crazy. <laughs> like, I'm just visiting New York and I've never seen anything like this. And usually that's a pretty good excuse to get away with it. So what separates an agent from a senior agent? You're both senior agents. Doing a lot of these missions. <laughs> well, yeah, we go, through, we go through various levels. <laughs> uh, it's a top secret initiation process that we have to go through. It's pretty rigorous. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, Years and years of doing this stuff. And yeah. it's, it's a grind. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's basically just people who have been doing it for a while and people that Charlie trusts uh, and that enjoy doing like as many missions as, as we want. And a lot of us uh, met through the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which yeah. Rob pointed out. That's a lot of us are friends through that. Who comes up with the ideas for the missions? Usually Charlie does, but sometimes other people pitch ideas. But for the most part, I guess Charlie. It's mostly Charlie, but also whoever I think just has the funniest idea. I know for the exactly. best by one, it was like a teenager in Texas, you know, Charlie. <laughs> and uh, so that yeah. was a great idea. And Charlie's like, that is really funny. We're yeah. going to give that a try because there are very few people in the world who have access to like this army of pranksters. And uh, <laughs> so that people love to pitch Charlie ideas, I think, all the time. Exactly. Is improv everywhere specific to New York City, or do you conduct missions in other cities as well? It is specific to New York City. I know there's sort of uh, groups that have popped up around the world to sort of yeah. become this global movement. Uh, none of those groups are directly affiliated with improv everywhere. They're more sort of inspired by But uh, there are definitely hundreds of Groups like this around the world who are doing yeah. similar type pranks. No pants missions done in 44 cities yeah. by other groups. Not they weren't improv everywhere, but they were like affiliated with improv everywhere. Yeah, 44 did cities it. in 16 countries. Yeah, I think, did it, uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Is there a political message behind your missions, or is it just fun and games? It's just fun and games. I think yeah. that is the political message: is just to do something fun, do something funny. There's really no political message beyond that in the group. You're not without critics, though. There are people who say, if you can rally all of these people together, why not rally them to do volunteer work, to help out organizations? What do you say to those people? Charlie uh, in the New York Times last week had a really articulate answer to that, which was, um, sure, we gather a, once a weekend every other month to do something together. Uh, but every weekend, you know, people go to a football game. People go to the Meadowlands. Thousands of people who go watch the Giants play or to watch any football team play. And, like, they could easily just be doing volunteerism as well. I mean, this yeah. is just something fun to do on the weekends. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people in our group do volunteer. Uh, there's no direct correlation between the two. Charlie said it more articulately, but yeah. I think that's uh, sort of the gist of it. Yeah, we're not against volunteering. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just there to have fun. It's just a reason for people to have fun. Improv everywhere has gotten very popular. You have a lot of people who are now taking part. Has it become any harder for you to keep the pranks a secret 
Have you lost some of the element of surprise over the years, do you think? No, I don't think no. so. I mean, every single time we, we do something, it's a surprise. I mean, some of them... Even though, yeah, even though No, no Pants has blossomed in this thing that thousands of people participate in, every time I've done it, there's always a huge element of surprise on the train. I actually yeah. have not encountered everyone being like, oh, it's improv everywhere. It's right. usually people are like, what is happening? And There's so many people in New York that so many people don't even haven't even heard of improv everywhere. There's a mission that's specific to you, Rob. It's called <laughs> Where's Rob? Tell us about that one. It was um, based on another mission that I did, which was Rob. I guess all my missions have to have my name in it. <laughs> With an exclamation point, right, Rob. It's where I get lost. The first time was all over Yankee Stadium. Where's Rob was at Madison Square Garden at a Knicks game. And it's something that I specialize in, getting lost. Uh, I have a natural inclination to get lost, and I look lost at all times. It's based on people at sporting events when they are looking for their seats. You see so many people that can't find their seats right away. And so their friends are like, hey, we're over here. So I basically took that and then basically heightened it to absurd levels where I got lost while holding a tray of food all over the stadium. Does this take place during the entire length of the game? Yeah, for the uh, Knicks game, it was the entire second half. I was wandering around the whole arena while two sections were waving their arms, yelling at me, and trying to spot me all over the arena. It became a Where's Waldo type game, and it helped that I had a red and white striped shirt. So when I put that on, it looked like Where's Waldo's Great. cap. Well, what's nice about that is people actually have compassion. They're exactly. concerned. They want to make sure you meet your friends. It's a really sort of sweet thing when it happens. Yeah. Everyone's like really concerned for this poor guy who can't yeah. find a seat. One of my, I was there for the game trying to flag Rob down. <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite moments is Rob was sort of like just wandering aimlessly in front of us, everyone shouting his name. And they had those people with the T-shirt cannons come out. And they shot one like right at Rob and he caught it. And that was, I mean, there's like huge cheer went up from the audience. I mean, like, and, yeah. uh, it was a pretty amazing moment. And especially the, the best moment of that mission is when Rob actually finds his seat at the end of the game. I don't know if you probably should tell what that is like. When he's yeah, there. so it's amazing. Like, I've never gotten such an ovation in my life. No, no other comedy show or anything else I've done. I've never gotten such a huge response. And I just come back, you know, shake my head and just say, Man, I've been looking all over for you guys. <laughs> Are you guys plotting your next move now? You just did the pants-free subway ride. That was a couple weeks ago. That was a big event, which uh, it takes some time to edit the video. The video just went online. If you go to YouTube, uh, to our Improv Everywhere YouTube channel, you can see that video. So we just finished that one, and I think we're starting to set our sights on the next project. And there's a website, right? ImprovEverywhere.com is the website where you can see all these things. And you can also purchase our book, Causing a Scene, which is uh, for sale on Amazon and through the site as well. Tell us about the book. The book came out uh, last May. It details uh, some of the group's best missions. You can read about the history of the No Pants subway ride, um, Best Buys detailed in there. Uh, Frozen uh, Grand Central. Frozen Grand Central, Rob. All the classic missions are told <laughs> in uh, detail. And there's also sort of tips if you want to start your own group, how to pull off similar missions. It's a pretty fun book. Yeah, it's, it's a great read. <laughs> Rob, Alex, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Alex Gordelis and Rob Lathan are senior agents with the group Improv Everywhere. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarkey. 
Scaffolding and chain-link fences are a common sight around lower Manhattan these days, as the neighborhood continues to rebuild following the 9-11 attacks eight years ago. And with all of the construction going on at once, one group is doing what it can to alleviate the eyesore. I headed downtown earlier this week to get the lowdown. My name is Liz Berger, and I'm the president of the Alliance for Downtown New York. My name is Maya Barkay, and I'm an artist and a photographer. Liz, let's start with you. Give us a status report on construction here in Lower Manhattan. How many projects are currently underway? Well, since 9-11, we have $30 billion worth of public and private construction in Lower Manhattan, up to 190 projects. That's a lot of construction. How much has the economic downturn affected these projects? Are you seeing that construction is slow in coming? Well, many of these projects are already in the ground and are going forward. Many of them are complex, multi-year projects. There are some that are awaiting financing. So that means some of these sites are sitting idle. Some are, but uh, there, there are other sites that are just long-term, complicated projects. Do you get a sense that some people who live and work in this area are feeling construction fatigue because there are so many projects? Well, there's no doubt that eight and a half years of uh, recovery and reconstruction uh, is taking its toll on the pedestrian experience in lower Manhattan. In fact, that's the reason that reconstruction actually started. It started as a very novel approach to construction mitigation. Most construction mitigation is about making a bad thing less bad. This is about making a bad thing good, creating a new, dynamic canvas for public art. Tell us about this project. Well, we're very excited. It is a construction mitigation project guided by an advisory committee of uh, public agencies and community uh, leaders and experts in the field. We have reached out to a group of arts consultants who are working with visual artists of all sorts and public agencies and private developers are using construction barriers, jersey barriers, timber barriers, blue walls, sidewalk sheds, as canvases for temporary public art and architecture. Seems like a no-brainer. Let's beautify these blank blue walls that are standing up here, one that's right behind us here, Fitterman Hall, which was recently taken down. This building was damaged on 9-11. They're going to reconstruct it. Well, Fitterman Hall is an example of how far Lower Manhattan has come since the very dark days of 9-11. I think we're all very excited that the building is down and a new one is going up. But as you said, it's been a long time coming. The goal of reconstruction is not just to beautify the blue walls, although I have no doubt that it will do that, but really create a new template and a new canvas for public art. So we're very excited to be working with artists, to be working with gallerists, to be working with curators, to create something that pedestrians, building owners, commercial tenants, and tourists all find exciting, different, new. That's Lower Manhattan. How are you going about choosing the artists for these projects? Well, what what we've done uh, with the project is create a uh, portfolio of projects from which public capital agencies and private owners can choose. And to do that, we've turned to several arts consultants, curators, gallerists, 
and others whose expertise is in working with artists in challenging situations. They're uh, soliciting artists to do work that fit certain technical guidelines we've established with the public regulatory agencies, and then we're letting the property owners choose. What are the particular challenges of turning these construction sites into public art projects? Uh, Well, I can tell you from the regulatory perspective, there are lots of rules, and there should be, uh, that regulate construction barriers primarily focused on safety and uh, public egress and uh, movement of traffic in the streets. Uh, And there are a variety of permitting regulations as well, material regulations, and of course, the number one goal here is to move construction forward, so we need to be supporting and not detracting from that effort. how, what challenges do those pose for artists? I think you'll need to speak to one of our artists. So let me talk to you, Maya, about the project that you created right down the street here on Church. Tell us about your project. Well, it's a project that actually depicts on the pedestrian icon. Um, it's uh, taking all the symbols of uh, pedestrian traffic lights from around the world and putting them together uh, where they're all holding hands and uh, basically surrounding the area, the, the site uh, of 99 Church Street. It was uh, actually funny that uh, the site actually determined this, the amount of images because when we knew it was going to be on 99 Church Street, that's when, we, when I decided to um, put uh, 99 icons to represent that numerical address of the project. I had no idea there were 99 icons to represent the walking man, that pedestrian signal that we're so used to seeing here in New York, which is really a white image of a walking man. Right. Uh, The project is titled uh, Walking Man 99 for that reason, and it's part of a bigger project called Walking Man Worldwide, which is uh, something that I've had in the work for many years now. Um, And uh, what we did is we used a website to generate all those images uh, from... to, to. uh, to collect all those images from around the world as soon as I realized that it won't be in my uh, means to uh, capture those myself for the photographer. Um, and what you're saying is right about New York. Uh, it was uh, I arrived in New York in 2002. I came here as a student, and I noticed uh, a couple of years later that in 2004 uh, it was a decision by Mayor Bloomberg to change the uh, don't walk and walk signs to actually to friendly characters, the cute little symbols that they are now. And I, and I do um, agree that they're going through a change now, actually. They used to be hollow men's uh, with no uh, light bulbs in the middle, and now, and now they, they're changing. I, but it's only my personal uh, theory of why they are changing, which I think is a safety, safety issue. But, uh, yeah, the more icons I have is actually looks nicer in the piece, so... What are among the most unique designs that you've come across for the walking man? And I should say the walking person, because they're not all men. Right. There are, I'm happy to discover that there are many female icons, like in Utrecht, the, ne- the Netherlands. Uh, they have a female traffic light icon. And when I asked for a friend to photograph her, and they said, oh, who, Sophie? Because apparently it was the people uh, of uh, the Netherlands who actually also named her Sophie. Uh, and there's also a very unique icon in Odense, Denmark. Uh, that's where Hans Christian Andersen, the writer and poet, was born. And they, their traffic light is uh, decorated with his silhouette. Uh, and what does that look like? A man with a cane and a hat, which is very typical to uh, Hans Christian Andersen, of course. Uh, 
There's also uh, in Wellington, New Zealand, where uh, I know that around I learned that around the parliament they use uh, f- uh, female traffic light icons because uh, it was the first country to give women the right to vote. Uh, so that's kind of a nice. Uh, a nice thing to know and to learn, actually, through this project. Uh, there's also Fredricia, Denmark, where they have a, a soldier in the traffic light, and that is uh, depicting on a, a famous statue in the city. It's a, I learned that it's a city that is very well associated with the military and that goes uh, back to uh, the Danish uh, victories over the Germans, uh, and that's something that they use in their traffic lights. How long did it take you to compile all of these images? Well, I, I started about five years ago. Like I said, I was I, I was under the impression that slowly, through my job as a photographer, I would be able to collect them, but uh, realized it would take many years to do that. So I thought that uh, it's smart how, how um, it would be interesting to challenge this medium of Internet to create an art piece, and that's when I started walkingmen.com to generate all these pictures, all these images for the installation. Um, And so I would say that it was a very intense project of about maybe eight months that uh, I think that you can easily say that ever since we knew that this was going to be public, uh, the attention was uh, more positive. Liz, what did you think when you first heard of this project, Walking Man 99? Well, I think it's very exciting. One of the charges that our advisory committee gave us was make impact, really create something special, unique, different, and exciting for pedestrians in lower Manhattan. And, of course, we have 400 years of defining art and architecture in lower Manhattan. Right now we're standing close to Seven World Trade, David Child's great new building with a Jenny Holzer inside and a Jeff Koons outside. Chase Manhattan Plaza is known for Du Buffet's trees and of course on Broadway we have Isamu Noguchi's Red Cube nodding to Marc de Souros' Joie de Vivre. So I think the charge was really make an impact and certainly Maya has with this project as have our other artists with other sites. This is a particularly dramatic site and I think it required Uh, a certain kind of scale and a certain kind of intensity. We've only heard wonderful things. Maya, have you ever stood over there on Church Street to watch how people react to all of those images? Well, I was uh, standing on a ladder for three days painting it, so that uh, obviously uh, people knew immediately that I was responsible to it and the reaction was incredible because well, some people come and recognize their own city and they take pictures next to it and some are just Really, it's the first time that they become conscious of this uh, very simple icon that allows all these artists to unite uh, around and, and the display is life size because they're all blown out to uh, human scale is uh, I assume it's impressive and it, and it catches people's reaction from my from my uh, impression at least. Illegal advertising is a big problem in this city. Are you ever concerned that someone will come along and plaster posters all over your work? Oh, yes. I'm more afraid of graffiti. If someone would paint a handbag next to the hand of some icon, that would, that would make me sad. <laughs> Is that something that concerns you? 
Well, remember that while we've chosen uh, public art as the vehicle, this is a construction mitigation project, and we're a business improvement district, and we provide supplemental services in public safety, transportation, and sanitation. We have zero tolerance for graffiti in lower Manhattan within our bid boundaries, and that applies to public art as well as to uh, public and private buildings. I would imagine for some of the artists, they're also thinking about the elements. I mean, here it is, a rainy day today, but we have lots of wind, we have snow, so you have to be cognizant of that as well. Well, uh, as I said, one reason that we worked with arts consultants was because we set a variety of technical requirements and we charged them with the creativity of working with artists to achieve them. So, of course, we uh, anticipated the elements, we anticipated issues of installation, of deinstallation, and of uh, maintenance for the duration of the uh, installation. Beyond Maya's project, give me an example of another one that's really quite striking. Well, I love them all equally, uh, but we're very excited right now about the uh, Jersey Barrier project that is up in Hudson River Park. We're doing a very interesting weaving project with found construction materials uh, on the wire fence that is above the Jersey Barriers in East River Waterfront Park. We have two very dynamic, very different murals on blue walls on Rector Street. And of course, we have a very exciting new project coming around Fitterman Hall. And how is this all paid for? We were very fortunate uh, to win a grant from the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, one of their community uh, improvement grants. And that is the source of the funding. There you go. Liz Berger, thank you so much. Thank you. And Maya, thank you. Thank you. And thank the Downtown Alliance as well for, their, for bringing this project to reality. Maya Burkai is an artist whose work is now wrapped around a construction site at 99 Church Street in Lower Manhattan. Elizabeth Berger is the president of the Downtown Alliance, the group behind the so-called reconstruction program. For more information, check out downtownny.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. You can also become a fan of Cityscape on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend.